Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Maletzadeh. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of our teeming shore. These lines from Emma Lazarus's seminal work is one we all know so well, and the Statue of Liberty is one of the iconic symbols of America. Once again this week, I will be turning over the podcast to Professor Andrew Treats, who's the co-chair of the programming committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, which will be held from November 1st to November 4th. In this week's episode, Andy will be interviewing Professor Anne-Marie Cusack. Anne-Marie will be moderating one of our November 4th panels. Send these, the homeless, tempest-toast to me, Emma Lazarus, the Statue of Liberty, and the problem of immigration. Anne-Marie will be talking with Esther Shore, a professor at Princeton University and the author of Emma Lazarus, the definitive biography of her life. I am very excited to hear this panel's discussion. In this episode, Anne-Marie and Andy chat about the panel and also about Anne-Marie's poetry. Her investigative reporting on stun belts and the attempt to use them in American prisons and a number of other topics. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to And Justice for All. I'm Andrew Trees, one of the programming co-chairs for this year's American Dream Reconsidered Conference. President Malexiday has kindly turned the podcast over to me to talk with some of the people involved in this year's conference, which will be held from November 1st through November 4th. In this week's episode, we're fortunate to have a chance to talk with Associate Dean Anne-Marie Cusick. She will be moderating one of our November 4th panels, Send These, The Homeless, Tempest Tossed to Me, Emma Lazarus, The Statue of Liberty, and The Problem of Immigration. She'll be talking with Esther Shaw, a professor at Princeton University and the author of Emma Lazarus, the definitive biography of Emma Lazarus. Associate Dean Cusick, or Professor Cusick, as I'll call her from this point forward, is also professor of journalism at Roosevelt University. She won the George Polk Award for her article, Stunning Technology, an investigation of the use of the stun belt in U.S. prisons. Her reporting for The Progressive inspired an Amnesty International campaign against the electronic stun belt and also contributed to the United Nations' decision to ask the United States to ban stun belts and restraint chairs. She's also the author of Cruel and Unusual, The Culture of Punishment in America. And in addition to all of that, she is a poet. She's published two books of poetry, The Mean Days and Silky. Her poetry has also appeared in a wide number of magazines and journals, including Poetry, Iowa Review, Tri-Quarterly, The American Scholar, The Briarcliff Review, and Crab Orchard Review. Professor Cusick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today. Thanks so much, Andrew. I'm really glad to be here. 
So I am quite curious about your unusual combination of poetry and journalism. I think of those as someone who writes as well as kind of opposite poles of the spectrum. Just the facts, give me, you know, the information versus this kind of really imaginative approach to language and seeing life in symbolic terms. Not that journalism can't have that as well, or the poetry can't have facts, but I think of those opposite poles. So can you tell me how you ended up doing both of those things? Is this a writerly schizophrenia or is there uh, some way in which they are uh, kind of, uh, they work with one another? I, I think what really drove me early was the desire to write. And I didn't really, it didn't really matter to me how I did it. I remember a moment just staring at some pebbles oddly and realizing that that language was my friend, that I knew what I could do to render that. And, and that, it just made me hungry to, to write. And I did work for my high school newspaper and they sent me out to interview and it, it turned into these, I would interview conscientious objectors and, you know, people talking about religion. I, I always went toward these kind of controversial issues that were, had some kind of social meaning. And I do these long interviews and they, they tended to publish the whole thing. So I think I figured out early on that I was good at features and interviewing. And then the poetry came in in college. I, I actually, uh, I wanted to write. I started thinking I was going to be a journalist and then wandered into some writing classes. And, and my teacher said, oh, you should be a poetry major, which is kind of funny. But I did. But it's kind of funny. I, I don't think of, I mean... It's, I think it's fantastic, but it's so funny. Like that's uh, you don't ever think of the college person like you should be a poet, right? Which is like talk about a very difficult, unusual profession. Right? Not like you should be a lawyer or a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> and they really helped me. I think you know I approached poetry with curiosity. We have a kind of concept of poetry that's reductive. I think right now where where there's a tendency to think poetry is a spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. <laughs> Recollected in tranquility, that's Wordsworth. That romantic idea, and you know, capital R romantic comes from the romantic poets. So for a long time, there was, I think, too many I poems with written from the perspective only of the poet and about the poet's emotions. And I really never approached it that way. I'm not that interested in myself when it comes to the poetry. I I was always curious. I, I was definitely curious about myself, but more about my position in society and where, mm. why the things I was seeing in my family were actually happening. My father went through a a very bad strike. He, his union was less affected than the printer's union, um, but it was a union busting strike in 1979 before the big one against the air traffic controllers. And I just, didn't understand it really. I lost my best friend. She had to move from town. But what I did understand were there were forces affecting me that were bigger than me. You know, I used to go down to see my family, big working class family, and they would tell stories about ancestors and relatives, but also talk about where they were. And I just remember statements like, all there are $5 jobs now, you know, and, and just seeing my cousins, some of my cousins who were older being laid off for six months at a time and, and really trying to understand like, what, what am I living in? And one of the things that those poetry professors knew immediately was that I was part of a working class family and that that had meaning and that some of what I was getting in terms of storytelling from them was being in the process of being lost. So my aim really from early on was to try to 
remember what I could and turn that into something written. And that became more, more and more conscious. So while I was in college during my senior year spring break, I took an old cassette recorder down and recorded my grandma talking for for days and days. And she, she actually was really awful on the recorder. She wouldn't say anything. And then when I turned it off, she told me great stories. And then later, my Canadian family is a little different. My, my grandfather was actually a, a newspaper man, famous in that region for being a conservationist and being one of the first people to write about DDT in Canada. He actually wow. did it before Rachel Carson. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's so, pretty amazing. So once I graduated, I, I went and I lived with some relatives, my mother's sister. And again, I went around and, and just gathered stories. And so over time, that relationship between reality and, and the word became my first book, I would say. So you can see the reporting in that because I'm actually interviewing, interviewing, interviewing really much more interested in how people understand themselves and understand their lives than, than in myself. There are exceptions to that, certainly, but, but that's where I was. So, and then with journalism, I think, you know, I was actually in grad school and thinking, oh, you know, I just want to be out there doing something. I wanted to do good. And I think that was, I wanted to make a difference. I guess that's the best way to say it. And I knew that early. I knew that before I went to college. When I interviewed for college, I actually said I want to make a difference as a reporter. So I knew that was a possibility. And I was in Madison. I was at UW-Madison in their English department. And a job opened at the Progressive Magazine in Madison. And I don't know if you know the Progressive, but it was started by Robert Marion La Follette. Really? I did not know that. It makes sense, though, as as he was a progressive. So yes, so Robert M. LaFollette is is well, he was senator from Wisconsin, and, and he was a Republican back when the Republican Party was not the same as it is now. And um, you could have quite liberal Republicans who were even progressive, which yeah, right. you don't find yeah, anymore. <laughs> and he was a governor, and but he was my childhood hero. I had learned about him in grade school. And I just, from that moment on, knew I really believed in what LaFollette said. So job opened at The Progressive, which had actually started publication on January 9th, which is my birthday. And I went in and interviewed and told them they should hire me because of that. And (laughs) for other reasons as well. And it so happened by then I had uh, published some poetry. I had done uh, degrees and, and the editor gave me a chance based on that, I think, partly because he wanted to start editing a poetry page, which I handled with him for, for years. And I knew there was a reporting opportunity there. And he did say that. So almost immediately they had me do a Q&A uh, interview with Irvishi Vad who had written a book about, I think it was called Virtual Inequality, about uh, gay and lesbian equality in the 1990s. And then I just asked for a story. I said, can I do a story? And it so happened that another journalist had failed to deliver a story (laughs) on a stun belt. And all they had as a lead, and this is where curiosity and openness comes in, was a little notice from the Bureau of Prisons that they were buying them. 
you know, even that idea, like what is a stun belt happened. So I said, sure, I'll take it. But I have to say that at that time, if you know the 1980s and 1990s, there was a great deal of fear of crime. And Marie Gottschalk, who's a political scientist who writes on um, justice and prisons, noted that the feminist movement really got kind of co-opted by some of the fear of crime and the desire to expand the justice system. And I really didn't think I was going to take on those issues. I thought I was going to write about class <laughs> and the environment and things that I thought I knew already. But no, I, you know, really, I didn't write much about either of those. I did write a lot on prisons. And so I started looking into this device and I I called the manufacturer and I I found ads and, and the device was, um, it was a battery, a nine volt battery that fastened above the left kidney of the prisoner and would go off for eight seconds at 50,000 volts. And that sounds like a very high voltage. I'm just curious, by point of comparison, like if when people have shock collars for their dogs, right, when they're training them, I've seen people use those, like how many volts is that? Do you know? I'm just curious. 50,000 sounds like a lot, like really extreme. So I got to say that I tried to find that out. And when I called the manufacturers of the dog collars, they wouldn't tell me what the voltage was. That makes me think it's higher than I suspect. So I don't know. I wouldn't. Um, well, I won't advise people what to do with their dogs and their collars. <laughs> but I can tell you that with the, the stun belt, it would knock um, people to the ground within, they would say, within a half second. Wow. And, um and it would keep going off. I mean, it would go for the for full eight, eight seconds. seconds, which is long. Oh my God. We did say, oh, it's safe because we reduced the amperage. But if you, you know, I finally found in London a man named Brian Wood, who was a researcher for, for Amnesty International. It turned out he was looking at the same thing. And he said, you need to look at how they studied this. And it turned out the studies were done on anesthetized swine, <laughs> which tells you that they're not figuring in adrenaline, right? If the pig is mm -hmm. asleep, it's not feeling. Mm -hmm. And some of the recommended uses were for things like courts, you know, sentencing or transportation. And fear, I would guess, is, is a big piece of wearing one of them because, mm -hmm. you know, they can go off. There's somebody with a button who could set it off. And so I started looking into some of these other stun devices and actually found a shield. You know, most of the stories, there hadn't been that many stories done, but almost all of them were very positive about this device. Right. Here's this cool new technology that's, yeah. you know, safe and non-invasive. And... and it spoke to the fear people had and the desire to control. And you can see that actually in the numbers who are now in prison. You can see that there's been a kind of, we can't let these people who have committed a crime back on the streets, they might recommit, they might, you know, recidivate, recommit. They're dangerous. So let's contain them. Well, the stun belt contained when they were in the open, right? When they were in court or transport, transporting. And there was also a kind of rising desire to cause pain. And I think you could argue that it did that. Mm -hmm. So, but I started, I found out that this guard named Harry Landis in Texas had been training to use another device that was based on the same design. 
and it was a stun shield. There were all these things kind of coming in mm-hmm. prisons. And in order to be trained with it, they asked people to be shocked with these devices. And he got up, was shocked, went back to his chair and then fell over and died. So I called the manufacturer. Yeah. I called the manufacturer of that device. And the quote was something along the lines of, we consider that to be a timing problem. I'm sure that was a great consolation. I'm saying this obviously sarcastically to his family uh, to find out that it was just a timing problem and that was all the the issue was. The argument was that he would have died anyway, that it was a hard issue that he would have had. But but when I spoke to the coroner and the uh, there was an engineer who looked at the device, they said no. The the device, the electric current knocked his heart into a different beat. Wow. Causing him to pass away. So that changed things a lot. So did the fact the manufacturer when talking to me would say these are 100% non-lethal. If you work in journalism, you know, never to say anything absolute. (laughs) And so, but he would claim that. And I, I would, you know, I talked to him a lot and I'd say, well, can you send it to Mexico? You know, are you willing to sell to Mexico, China, Saudi Arabia? And he was very willing to sell to these, what were at the times, torturing states. Mm-hmm. And so that story, which was my first one, just blew up almost immediately. So once it hit, Amnesty International said, we're launching a campaign against this device. And it just turned into my biggest story ever. That's <laughs> beginner's luck and or something. Talk about a great start. Uh, it's uh, very impressive. I did get shocked while doing it. Somebody told me, my boss, I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Don't ever do this, by the way, if you're a journalist. Don't hide things from your boss. But I did. I went, you know, a, a lawyer said, you'll be a lot more believable if you actually are willing to be shocked. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm young enough. I'll go sh- sh- I wouldn't do this in a few decades. But I'll this do- sounds like we're getting into some gonzo journalism territory, right? With like 100 stops or whatever. Yeah. I mean, this is a... Uh- what was crazy was I was going home for Easter up to Appleton, Wisconsin, see my mom and dad, and the local jailer was a trainer for the company, Stuntech. So he let me in to the my local jail and... <laughs> took me up, showed me the device, and they were talking about how they were all trying to withstand it, and they were betting each other like Mountain Dews, and he would give away prizes if you could remain standing while the stun belt went off. And I said, well, I'd like to be shocked with it. And he said he wouldn't do it, but he let me be shocked by a stun gun. Which is not as powerful as the stun belt. I think... In in voltage, it might be, but you can't. He made me hold it against my own leg, and you can only hold it against your leg for like okay less than half a second. Because so, so basically, you're getting the full thing, just not the full eight seconds. Yeah, I think that's where it was. That's what I. Okay, remember. so so you have to now. I'm quite curious. What was that half second like? Tell me what it is like to be hit with the stun gun. Yeah, so I really felt my stomach, like my uh, muscles, clench, and then I was really tired. that's all I really remember. But, you know, there were videos. I saw videos of people that they, they gave me a videotape just panicking when that, you know, guards being shocked by it in training 
and diving toward the ground, diving toward like a metal cart, like not even thinking about where they're going because it really, and it, and it does go off for that full eight seconds. So the trainer told me when he was shocked, it was devastating. He said he was down on his back spinning around. He didn't really know where he was. The other thing about it was they would say, well, it doesn't burn you, but it leaves two signature marks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have to say, my my thought is, I'm hearing all this, anytime there's some new technology, right? I mean, police forces love the new technology. I used to cover, back in the day, I was a reporter, and one of the things I covered was police beat. And then ah. anytime there's a new technology, I feel like they should, they should have to be willing to use it on themselves at least once so that they have a sense of what it really does, right? Whether it's, you know, rubber bullets or whatever, and they're like, oh, this is great. This is, don't worry, it's so safe. It's non-lethal. It's a great way to do it. It's much better than what we had. It's like, okay, well, you do, you got to do one. If you want to use the stun belt, you got to do one stun belt. You got to get hit one time just so you know what it's like. Like, I feel like if they really feel that way, you should experience it and see, oh, well, this is actually what it feels like. Yeah, they did that, and they, they were willing to do it. They really were. You know, I think one of the things I discovered over time, because, you know, I looked at tasers, I looked at restrained chairs, and was how different our bodies are, you know. We're not mm -hmm. all the same. And and then you have issues with people maybe being on drugs and or drunk and or having diabetes or a heart condition or something that's hidden. Right. And then put, then shocked. Mm -hmm. So I think, or put in a restraint chair and having your chest compressed by straps when you may, may be panicking or, mm -hmm. you know, and, and being smaller and being shocked, being a child and being shocked, being 82 and being shocked, 82 years old. I, at one point tried to find the oldest and the youngest person ever shocked. Those things, you know, being pregnant and being shocked, those shift the impact of the shock. Mm -hmm. So when, you know, there were, and a lot of this is coming from the manufacturers trying to sell it, but there were, you know, tendency to try to, let's use it for tasers for crowd control. Well, if you do that at a football game, you maybe are shocking. You don't know who you're shocking. Mm -hmm. um, but that's actually true in practice when people are picking up suspects. They, they don't know who they're shocking. So I think over time, uh, police have been, and it's partly the fear of lawsuit, have been become skeptical about tasers, for instance, and some of these devices. I think they also solved problems for them, maybe in some cases too easily, but because they brought in other dangers. But yeah, anyway. You know, I, it's pretty amazing when you wanted to do, you were hoping to go into journalism and, and, you know, do some good in the world. And like, it's pretty incredible that you wrote about that and had this in, sort of major impact right at the start of your career, which is incredible. Uh, I feel like in some time, in some days, particularly these days, journalism gets a bad rap, right? Everyone thinks journalists are kind of secretly in bed with one political side or the other and just pushing their opinions under the guise of news. And I think the kind of journalism you're talking about is very different than that. So I'm curious what you, what argument you would make to kind of the world at large about journalism, not as a kind of secret uh, vehicle for your political beliefs, but in, in a very different way in society. 
Okay, that's not a question you gave me. <laughs> no, I know. I'm going, I, this is what happens. You, you've said all this interesting stuff. I actually have, there are a bunch of things I want to ask you about that really have nothing to do with the questions I gave you. So. Um, you know, and well, so what would I say? I would say one thing is this. The best, I, I was an investigative reporter. So I went into stories and my, my editor would say, well, I want, I want you to find this. And I would go in and if it wasn't there, I would tell him it's not there. It's absolutely mm -hmm. not there, and I'm not going to report it. So going in, I, I think people who are open and curious probably make the best reporters and who are willing to let the facts lead you toward the discovery. One of the last stories I did on prisons was actually about all the Republicans and all the good they're doing on it. You know, I don't think it's a one-sided piece, especially mm -hmm. With prisons and there was a there were right around 2015 quite a lot of initiatives coming from republicans so i think the best reporters really listen to people but one of the things we're getting a lot of especially on tv right now is opinion that pretends to be journalism you get mm -hmm. that heavy heavy opinion and that's really interesting because i mean you said originally you think about journalism as facts and poetry as as emotion and I think we're getting a lot of emotion in, in the journalism on television. And I, I'm very, I'm very disturbed by it because I, I think that the facts don't lead there. So. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, and I, so I feel like there's a lot of political commentary now that masquerades as journalism. That's not really journalism. It's just yeah. people spouting their opinions. And when I was a reporter, uh, you know, I wrote about politics, uh, you know, local village boards and things like that. But really, I saw my job mainly as public service in the sense of there's things going on in your town or in your county or in the state that are important for you to know about. And not really having necessarily a, a huge stake in which side uh, won the argument, but feeling like this is a really significant issue and people in the community should know about it and should at least have, have some awareness that this is going on. So I, I saw it more in that role. I mean, I think a lot of people see the yeah. news now. It's not really news. It's it's just political commentary in ways that I think it's, it's sort of a misguided uh, notion of what journalists do. Well, when you're talking on the local and state level, that's really, really important. And we've lost a lot of reporters in those places. And uh, it's really dangerous. So I think those are, in some ways, some of the most valuable reporters we have. I actually, I'm just going to take us all the way back to the, to the start of your, uh, when you were started talking about this, but I'm quite fascinated. It seems like you said you, uh, I think, saw some pebbles and realized you kind of want to describe them and, and language. And then also very early on, you realized you loved to interview people, that this became kind of a thing that you found very early. Yeah. I'm curious how young you were when you found these things. Like, it seems like you, I'm always curious how people find what they're passionate about in life. So you seem like you found this very early. How did you know? How did you stumble on it? Those sorts of questions. I, I was wanting to write really, really early. So grade school. And I wrote mm -hmm. stories and poems. I just wrote and wrote and wrote. Interviewing. It was, like I said, in high school, junior year, mm -hmm. when I started interviewing people. And just, uh, but they were, people who I didn't know. So I went outside my school. Like I, you know, as a school newspaper, I went into the town. I made appointments with people who, you know, I just really, I remember this guy really inspired by Ann Rand, <laughs> who became a conscientious objector and re refused to sign up for the draft. It was fascinating. 
fascinating guy. I just would find people and spend hours with them and write down everything they said. Uh-huh. And I just, I think for me, I realized then that it's a way of learning about the world. And I can say that that has been true here in Chicago. So I came here, you know, in 2006 from Madison. I'd always been kind of national investigative reporter for this little magazine. So I would do all the data work. I'd do all the document work. I'd do a whole bunch of phone interviews and then, you know, a helicopter in, not by helicopter, but go somewhere and spend a week there. And that was, you know, put together the story, maybe a couple places, but with Chicago, it's just this vast city and two projects led me into the neighborhoods with interviewing and made me feel like it's my city, made me know it a lot more. So one was with the Social Justice News Nexus, which is um, run by the McCormick Foundation in Medill, housed in Medill. They got students together with community reporters, and we reported on public mental health clinics in Chicago. So I reported on a group of activists who got their own public mental health clinic started, like the first one in two decades in the city. And I was just going down into these neighborhoods and talking to them and wandering around with them. And and the other one was a photographer from Madison wanted someone to work with him on memorials. And he actually was thinking more about rural memorials. And then Mike Ensdorf said, who runs the Gage Gallery here at Roosevelt, said, Chicago memorials. And so we just came, he would come to town and we would go, we'd research and we'd find memorials everywhere. And a lot of it was word of mouth, you know, students would say, oh, there's one over here. There's one there. And we'd go find all the memorials and find people who had built them or had lost the person being memorialized. And I would just interview them. And between those two projects, I just felt that I learned a ton about the city and I, I started to feel like it was my city, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think for me, there's, that's the one thing I think might be surprising for people that some journalists, the personal piece that they get from it really is always learning and being a participant in the world in these kind of almost nitty gritty ways, you know, smaller ways maybe, but, but profound really. Mm hmm. Well, so I'm curious, what do you what is the secret or what is your secret or what do you think is the key to basically doing a successful interview? You're clearly very good at getting people to open up and sort of get whether it's a worldview or information about something. I think a lot of people struggle with that. This is if you want to offer a critique of my uh, interviewing technique uh, during this session, we can also talk about that. But I'm curious how you go about interviewing, what 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 you do to get people to open up and to share with you. I noticed you asked open-ended questions. That's one of the big ones. I think being genuinely curious and friendly, I'm very sort of Midwestern friendly. So I think that helps. But then I, I try to be less present in the room. I try to really, you know, ask gentle questions at the beginning that are open-ended. That means beginning with what and how, rather than anything that will get a yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. And and over time, start you know asking the harder ones. I mean, there's a process, right? Mm-hmm. Establish a rapport, but it usually means responding to what they say with maybe a follow up question or rephrasing it back to them to try to make sure I understand it, mm-hmm. rather than participating in it like a dialogue. So, 
And mm-hmm. I really think curiosity and openness go a long way. I understand, and it's always interested me that we're all different and that we all think differently and that I can gain by by understanding different perspectives, whether they're political or social. I don't have, I'm a little malleable that way. <laughs> and I, I think that that's a good thing for a reporter or somebody who, you know, tries to tell stories in poetry from different perspectives too. That doesn't mean I fully understand everyone, but I do try to do them justice on the page. And if they feel that, if they feel that I'm trying to convey what they want to say, not what I want them to say, I think that really matters. The other thing is that a lot of, you know, sources are motivated by different things. But a lot of them, the people I've worked with, no one's ever listened to them before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, or very few. And if they have, maybe they haven't really listened, you know, so that mm-hmm. that goes a long way too. It also makes those people vulnerable and there's a there's a sense of, you know, I owe them mm. fairness. So treat them with respect and dignity and hmm yeah so I don't know I mean I think I've always just wanted to know <laughs> what do what do you think what happened what was why did that what made that happen what you know and that's a luxury that I can ask those questions and that I think being a journalist and also a poet too you get to you have excuses to ask things that are kind of inappropriate or rude in other circumstances <laughs> And I like doing that. <laughs> I'm saving the rude questions for the end of our podcast. That's right. You can do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention and I didn't yet, it's, um, you know, you probably know of Mark Dowie who did the um, writing on the Pinto, the exploding car back in the 70s. Right. I heard him talk. It was actually, well, it was a panel of investigative reporters and he he got up and he started almost preaching and he said write investigative this investigative and he said write investigative poetry and i i thought that is the coolest idea but you know investigations are really really time consuming and so uh, you know 80 percent is reporting as you know and then and then you have to write it and right. and i care a lot about the writing part and the narrative part and the emotional part too so it's it's hard but then but there is Mero Rukeyser's The Book of the Dead, which draws on congressional testimony about mining in West Virginia by Union Carbide, where miners were forced to dig for silica without masks and with drills mm-hmm. and then start dying. And and so there is a precedent for that. And I think I, I cause like you were saying their poetry and, journalism are separate. I don't think they always need to be. And I think that's a really interesting direction for poetry. It's not one that people have returned to that often, but there are, there are some books that do that. Well, you know, you've convinced me actually that I was wrong to set them as polar opposites. I mean, in talking to you, I feel like there's clearly a very deep connection there, right? That it's not like you access two different sides yourself. They're both these kind of uh, curious, exploratory, investigative attempts to understand the world through language. And I mean, it, as you're describing, it's like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. I, I can see how those go together. So I'm curious, uh, you know, I think uh, 
Firstly, everyone has some sort of creative urge. And I think sometimes that gets blocked in a variety of ways. And one of the one of the initial things is sort of where to begin. So I'm curious for you as a journalist and or a poet, where do, where do you get your ideas? Where do you start from where you say, this is what I want to work on next, or this is what I want to write about? I really do like it when I get ideas from other people. That's what's strange about me. I think a lot of people are more internally motivated, but it's always been helpful to me when an editor says, oh, I need you to do this because mm-hmm. I think I understand the world and I don't, I'm not necessarily letting in these other options. And the moment someone shakes it up a little bit, oh, I have to learn this now, right? And and that's really great for me. So So I do really appreciate editors for that reason and also because they've saved me from myself so many times. But and then I think with one of the things that happens to journalists, and you you will know this from reporting, that you know, when you start doing stories, you hear something and link to one story and it leads you to the next story. Mm-hmm. Right? So that happens a lot. And then I also, once people knew I was doing this work, they would contact me. So on the restraint chair, you know, I'd done these stories on stun devices and a lawyer called me up and he said, you have to do something on the restraint chair because we've had two deaths down here in Florida in restraint chair. So you get that reputation. But I think also one of the big places is where are there unanswered questions? And it might be in a news story where you get a little snippet and you say, how, how, how did that happen? And The example I can really recall of that happening to me was reading, um, it was an embargoed Amnesty International report, but I was looking for stories. I would read all sorts of, you know, organizations, reports, ACLU, just trying to figure out where is there something. And this one said, just one sentence said, social services workers are asking parents to have their kids arrested in order to get them mental health care. <laughs> and I went, what the heck? What? That's, yeah, I know that's how, how did that happen? And I, I asked them what they knew and they just had one person really. And so I just started calling and calling and calling and calling, especially mental health organizations. And it turned out that it really was happening. And that it was in particular happening in the South and the West, where there weren't enough hospital beds, and it was really Mm. hard to get kids into mental health clinics. And yes, parents were having their kids arrested to get them mental health care. They were told this, but, but you know, what's the problem with juvenile justice there is there's a lot of other things that happen. So one case, the father thought he could help his son by having him arrested. And the son, you know, the father adored the son. It just, you know, often it was like, oh, the kid would take the car and go for a joyride. And the parent would go, okay, here's my excuse. I'll get him arrested. I don't remember what led this father to have his, what, what the excuse was in this case. But I do know that the son spent 23 days straight in solitary confinement. Wow. Yeah. And Which so, is clearly not what the father ever wanted or intended. Well, it's the problem with mental health issues in in any jail or prison. And we've, we, as a society, that's a whole nother piece, but we really have gone to the place where we're using these 
facilities as places to house many mentally ill people. And so, you know, the idea of the parents was, oh, I'll get my child in and get them treatment. They'll get to the front of the line. They'll get treatment in, ju- in the juvenile yeah. justice facility. The reality was that that often did not happen in the way that they had hoped it would. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, that little sentence led to that story. Mm-hmm. And for me, that mystery and that sense of unsettledness, like that's not solved for me. I, I want to know mm-hmm. what caused that. And I think the same thing, that kind of unsettledness that comes out of things I hear from people leads me to write poetry in kind of different circumstances, but usually it comes out of storytelling. So I one person told me a story one time about a little girl whose father remarried after her mother died and took her out in the woods and left her there in Northern Wisconsin. And then a neighbor came along and adopted her. But I just thought, what in the heck happened there? You know I mean? So that kind of question of what made, what made this happen and what was the effect, that psychological piece, which I, I can't go find that little girl. It was in the 1920s. I can't find her and find out that answer. So in that case, that's where you, imagination had to come in and, trying to understand that piece. And I do have a family story that's like that for me right now that I think is more like novel length. And I don't know if I'll ever manage to do this, but you know, I have that and it eats at me. It's because I don't fully understand it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's where some of the ones that give me the most interest come from. Hmm. Well, let me tap into your poet side and I guess your moderator side and uh, talk a little bit about the American Dream Conference as well. Uh, You're going to be talking with Esther Shaw on Emma Lazarus, whose famous poem is on the base of the Statue of Liberty. And I'm curious both uh, what you're excited to talk to her about and also you as a poet who obviously deals with symbolic language all the time, uh, what you think about when you think of the Statue of Liberty as a kind of national symbol. So... I have that poem in front of me and I'm wondering if I could read the whole thing because yes, generally we hear quoted a few lines from it and I went and read, read the poem and was actually surprised by it. So it's called the new Colossus. It's by Emma Lazarus and professor Shore's biography is, is what we'll be talking about in during the conference. And the poem goes like this. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore send these, the homeless, 
tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So I don't want to lose you there. I can see you. (laughs) (laughs) I had always heard those last lines and it was, it's pretty interesting reading Emma Lazarus. She's, she's really a good poet. And I didn't know much about her until I looked at Professor Shore's book, but that poem is not just about, I mean, it gets framed as being about immigration and that part is there, Mm -hmm. but it's also really anti-imperialist. Like it's really, I know we are not going to be the country it says that is full of pomp and self-importance and striding from land to land and taking them over and then causing these people to go into exile. Right. And instead we're going to be mild and then we're going to welcome. And it's very specific about refugees. Like those who have been made homeless from these other basically greedy countries we're going to give them a home and i really found that touching i i found found all the um the directions that the poem goes touching i didn't uh i didn't realize that it was anti-imperialist you know it's fascinating uh i'm really glad you read that i mean i'm i don't know if i've ever read the whole poem that's uh, that's a good question i if i have i don't remember uh but you're right i it it's fascinating because you do think of this fact that, you know, it, we're doing the American dream reconsidered, but in the American dream implicitly is a certain idea of American exceptionalism and American greatness. And this poem, I think, really questions that in interesting ways and suggests a very different way of thinking about the nation and its place in the world. And I, I think that's really fascinating. And maybe it's a good transition for me to say to everyone that I hope you will attend the American Dream Conference this November from the 1st to the 4th, uh, you can see the full schedule at roosevelt.edu backslash American Dream. And if you want to listen to this podcast or any other podcast, you can go to roosevelt.edu backslash podcast. It's been a pleasure talking with you today, Anne-Marie. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.